What do we do now? <laughs> I mean, have you ever asked yourself that? Right? I mean, I'm sitting down there and I'm going, okay. Thank you very much, whoever put me at the end of this. I've asked myself that before, though, you know, what do we do now? Um, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, it, it is what it is. Yeah, but, but sometimes it ain't. I mean, sometimes it just is what people kind of think it is in the moment. When I was like, I was like 11 years old, and um, I had a buddy that lived like at the top of this big hill, and we would go, we'd like to go there Friday nights, you know, it would be a great place to go on Friday nights, his parents are always somewhere else, and so this was kind of, it was kind of out, a little out of town, and the neighbors weren't very close, there wasn't a ton of traffic going by there, but this house, I mean, you could kind of see Dothan, Alabama, you know, from this, this mountain, it was kind of like a mountain to us, and, and, um, and so we, you know, we're 11, and we got to messing around with, uh, with like, fire, which, you know, <laughs> like, when you're 11, fire is so cool. I, do you remember watching your kids? Sometimes you just, like, nothing but, you know, a, a stick in a fire, and a kid is just like that just all night. And so we got to messing, and, and a, a, one of my buddies said, you know, we could take this lighter fluid and spread it across the road. Now, I got to tell you something. The, like, the kids that are here today, you know how you, you probably see your dad put lighter fluid on the fire, and, you know, and then, then your dad like, strikes a match and goes and lights this edge and this edge. I don't know what kind of lighter fluid they're using now, but that ain't what we grew up with. I mean, do you remember the lighter fluid we grew up with? You know, my, we, everybody would know when, when we were, you know, cooking out because, well, the Andrews are barbecuing. I look at the mushroom cloud coming over the back. Because, you know, they would put that stuff on, and my dad would get back and throw the mash. Well, that was what this, this stuff, I don't know really what it was, but we poured it across, like, you know, it was a little stream, poured it across the road and got on one side and lit it, and it goes, it was just beautiful, and so we did it, we did it again, you know, poured it across the road a little more this time, and then you lit it, and like, it was so cool, and then somebody said, how do you make it last longer? Now, we looked around in their kitchen, and his mom had this, like, this half a gallon of sorghum syrup. And so we said, I bet you if we mixed this syrup in with this stuff, this, this lighter fluid, I bet you, I bet it would last longer. So we did it, and it wouldn't light. So he said, bet you if we add some gasoline, <laughs> it'll light. And it did. We, we poured it across the road, 
and we lit it, and it went, <laughs> and flames shot up about this high. <laughs> and it, but it didn't go out. It's like, it's like, and then we see a car coming up the hill. We said, we got to put it out. So we go, like that. Well, when we did that, the syrup stuff splashed and it comes up on our legs and we're like, ah, ah, and it's, it's not going out. And then we got little fires splashing over here. And I remember yelling, what do we do now? And the answer at that point was there wasn't much to do, you know? I mean, that kind of played out with the fire department and the police and our parents. I mean, you can't lie your way out of something that obvious, you know? But it was, it was it's one of these, what do we do now moments that when syrup and gasoline kind of get together and you know you've reached kind of the, it looks like the, the biggest point that's ever going to, that's going to happen, you know. It, it's like, it don't get any bigger than that. And that's why I look at this today and I, I'm like, wow, this you know, I, I, was, I was so amazed when Michael asked me to be here. Now, granted, I know, I, you know, I didn't even ask, who did you ask first, you know, <laughs> or second, or, or third, or, you know, I mean, because, you know, in reality, I'm assuming Charles Lowry was tied up, you know, I mean, <laughs> when Billy Graham died, I knew I moved up a notch, so, there. <laughs> But I had to, you know, you had to prepare something that is, that is special. And I asked, I, you know, I asked my wife, I said, what, what do you like, what would you like me to do? What would you like me, you know, to speak about? He said, oh, you know, not, not me. And I said, you know, that is so Michael Cat. You know, that, I called him M-Cat, and that is just, that's so him. And yet... Look at this. And so I did want to, if it's okay with you, I'd like to read a Bible verse. Join me if you want. I've got it written down. This is from Thomas 14, 5 through 7. For the angel came unto them and commanded that God's people stop even the good works they were doing. From this day forward, he said, you shall take time to cherish the past, for it was exceedingly good. Honor your great leaders and celebrate victory by remembering the miracles God has done for you. For the Lord says, my hope for you is that you will sit back and think about how great things used to be. And you might as well, for I giveth the church only 30 years of good times, and after that, you're on your own. Now, 
<laughs> we all know God didn't really say that. There's not really a, a, a book of Thomas in the Bible either. There is the book of Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, as you know, 29 11, he says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Which is exactly the opposite of what most people think about on a day like this. Because there is a time to celebrate the past. There is a time to celebrate the victories. And this morning is it. But tomorrow ain't. You know, it's, it's funny how different Thomas and Jeremiah are in what they say. And, and of course, they would be very different. You know, Thomas and Jeremiah, it, it was also... It was almost going to be the first cartoon, Thomas and Jeremiah, but they couldn't really come up with a concept that would work there. But the, the idea, the idea here is that as we move through this day, there is more. I've heard it said several times already, the adventure continues. There's more to do. There's more to become. I, I looked at your mission stuff, and I was blown away. Just blown away at what you've already done. And, of course, you know, it, it inspires me. I, in February, I'll be uh, working to s smuggle Bibles into Hawaii. And <laughs> any donations are accepted for that. You know, Drew, I don't know how well you know. I don't know how well you know Michael, but I, I really hope he likes you. You know, I mean, I really hope, hope he does. And I hope you have some understanding of, of what's happening just as far as being able to be around Terry and Michael. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 60 years old, and, and Michael is like my big brother. And I realized when he was up here a little while ago, and he said some nice things about me. My dad died when I was 19. My, both my parents died when I was 19. And, and I, there have been times in my life that I have dealt with certain people that I realized that either I was uh, unequipped for that situation because of, uh, you know, the way I was raised or just what happened as a young adult. And, and, uh, but then there have been other times that I realized that God put a person in my life to not just to inspire me, but to teach me, to show me, to be an example for me, and, and you know, there's, I can tell you people, there are two pastors. I, I, I even hate to say this, I, and, and, and understand, this is just me. This, is, this may not be you, but in my life, there, I've had the opportunity to just be around a ton of people. I'm not saying there have been some great ones, 
But there have been two pastors that I have just been in awe of. And, and the jury's still out on the other one, okay? But, but him, I mean, he, uh, he has been very special to me because of how he has handled the success that, that he has led you guys to. And, and I, I just want, I, I feel what he feels in the, in, in the, in the opportunity that comes for more. I mean, I know you know he was sick this year. That scared me to death. I mean, man, that when when you called, I I mean, I got off the phone and I, I told Polly, I said, Michael has cancer. And and she said, Are you okay? Because she knows how I I feel. But, you know, I told Polly, I said, I know. I know that, you know, I know that, that God has this cancer. But, but I also knew Michael was going to be home a lot. And I, I thought, there is a possibility that Terry could kill him. So, <laughs> there are many different things that could have gone wrong there, right? You know, when, when you're looking to move forward from something that has, has been already just this great, you know, talking, like last night, we ate dinner, uh, Michael and I ate dinner together, and, and I asked, I said, so tell me, you know, tell me some of your moments of the past 30 years, tell me, just kind of, just tell me what you're thinking, and you know, everything Everything he talked about was like about you. He was like, oh, you know, there's this one guy. There's a oh, man, tomorrow you got to meet this lady who, and if it wasn't for her, and da 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 da. And you would think the guy had really not done anything. But I, 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 I got again so deeply how much of an example he is for me for humility and serving. This serving thing has been, has been unbelievable to see for me just in the past five or six years. You know, I, I've been aware for a while that what I was supposed to do, that the books I was supposed to write, I was supposed to write uh, books that Christians could give to their non-Christian friends that they would actually read and create conversations between Christians and non-Christians. That's, that's the books I was supposed to write. And that I was supposed to be able to somehow show a value in Jesus and a value in the Bible that many people in our world today don't see. And they've give up questioning now. Uh, you know, years ago there there was uh, there was not there there was the opportunity years ago to talk to people because they were open to being talked to. They 
you know, there wasn't anybody walking around feeling like they knew everything. You know, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, in the, in the 70s, you know, I think about this time when you guys were praying in your church and in the high school gyms this time, and I think about what was going on then. You know, you know what? Well, we had three television channels, and most of us only got two of them, and, and they, they ended like at midnight. There was a, a radio station or two in town, the newspaper, how could you know everything? I mean, we didn't even know the, 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 the football polls. We didn't know what the polls said until Tuesday because the, the radio station would tell us, but they had to wait for the newspaper to be delivered so they could tell us. I mean, how could you know everything? Only rich people had encyclopedias, and, and most of them only had to, like, M or N. And so when you ask somebody, you know, back then, hey, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, people go, I don't know. He opened the list. I mean, you could go have a volleyball game on the beach and, and then go invite some new people and play another game and then take a break and drink a Coke and show them the four spiritual laws and I'm a part of the youth group and then go talk to their parents. I mean, they, but, but now, people know everything. I mean, they think they do. They don't really know everything, but they think they know everything. Because they've all watched, you know, a, a debate with a creationist and, and an atheist on YouTube. They've all seen Bill Maher on HBO. They've all, you know, everybody's watched something and seen something, and they've decided. And so when you say, hey, do you have it? It's like, no, I'm fine. And see, our challenge right now is that most of us don't have anything to say to that. You know, we got, we, you know, uh, we got, it'll change your life. And most of them like, I'm fine, but it'll, it'll change your life. I'm fine. It's a hard place to be when we can't have a conversation about something more than what we learned in Sunday school in the second grade. We've got to find a way to create value in Jesus Christ to people who see no value, don't want to hear the message, and we've got to figure out how to do it without wearing his name out. You know, I, I had a friend that I literally had to say, Buddy, you got to stop talking about Jesus so much. You're killing us. And he said, why would you even say that? I said, Jim, if, if, uh, if you and I just met, 
or maybe we work together. And, um, and we decided we were going to meet one day for lunch. And it was the first time we really had a couple of moments together. And you said hi, and I said hi. And you said, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? And I said, yeah, it is a beautiful day. It really reminds me a lot of my wife. Polly likes days like this. Um, you know, I look at these clouds, <laughs> I think Polly. Um, and you said, well, where are we going to go eat? And I said, well, we eat wherever you want to. And you started to say something. I said, but Chick-fil-A is like my choice because where Polly likes to eat. I know she's not with us, but Polly loves Chick-fil-A. <laughs> and so I would love to go to Chick-fil-A if, if you don't mind because, you know, it is Polly's favorite. And then we got in the car together. And I said, wow, this is a beautiful car. This reminds me of my wife. She loves this kind of car. And after a little while, you might start thinking, what is it with this guy and his wife? I don't know that I want to meet his wife. As a matter of fact, I don't know if I want to be around this guy. And my wife, who is awesome, you would totally miss out on because I was an idiot. And I couldn't be wise in choosing the time and the words to explain what I needed to explain. Now, people, people they have an odd view of what service is when we ask people to serve. And I think people have a, a, an odd understanding of the value it is by itself. Now, I speak to a lot of corporations, and I have some as clients, and I'm, I'm a nobody, right? I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have a television show. I don't have a, uh, um, I, I don't have a gold medal. I don't have a Super Bowl ring. And so the only thing that I have possibly going for me when I work with corporate people or coaches is, is results. That's the only thing. And I can't even have normal results because I'm a nobody. I mean, if you had Peyton Manning come in and you increased 15%, well, Peyton would get all the credit, okay? But if you have me in and only increase 15%, it's like, yeah, we like Andy, but I'm not sure we couldn't have done this without him. So I have to have huge results. And I had this conversation with God a few years ago. And I said, Lord, I'm writing the books I believe you want me to write. And I believe I know the hands you want these, these books into. And I believe I know, you, you know, you're giving me this stuff to say. I had begun praying a prayer. I prayed for wisdom for years, mostly because I knew I was supposed to. But then I started praying, God... Please help me to understand things you want your people to understand. That if they did understand, they would live the lives you want them to live. Which means they would have a relationship with you. Which means they wouldn't have to come to the government or to Oprah or to me or anybody. They'd go right to you. 
And God, give me simple ways to explain complicated things that are confusing people. And so these things started opening up in my mind. And one of the huge ones was the value of service. And so I started working with these uh, companies. I said, there's one that um, I, I, I sat down with this guy. He's the CEO of, uh, of this company. And, uh, and I saw so clearly. Now, I don't know anything about the mortgage business. I, mean, I don't know anything really about football. But I had my hand in nine national championships in a row. Uh, at, at one point, first time I ever went in Nick Saban's office, he asked me, he said, what is your experience? And I said, I played football in the sixth grade. And, <laughs> but, but I sat down with this guy and I, I saw so clearly how this company could change. And I, and I told him, I said, you guys have the opportunity, you have some great people, you have the opportunity to double your results in a year. And he said, oh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, that would be great. Wouldn't that be great? And I said, no, I'm serious now. You have the opportunity to double your results in a year. And he said, well, you know, we did $5.4 billion last year. I said, yeah, I know. And you should be able to double that in a year. And he said, well, you know, it took us 19 years to get to $5.4 billion. I said, yeah, I know and you should be able to double that in a year. So we started talking in January of that year, we started working together, and literally, this Fairway Mortgage, I'll tell you who it is, and uh, exactly a year later, they came in the gate at 11.2, which was exactly 101%. So next year they were at 17 something billion, next year at 22, they just yesterday crossed 36 billion, all right? Now, here's the thing. I don't really know anything about the mortgage business. What I know about is people serving people. And I know who gets the business. The people who get the business are the people that we like. There isn't a person in here who hadn't paid more for something or gone to more trouble for something than they had to. Right? I mean, we've paid more for something. We, we, we've driven across town and waited a couple of days when we could have gotten it online, had it delivered overnight, but we've waited. And in every one of those cases, the reason that we did was because of somebody. We were showing gratefulness. We were showing loyalty, respect. Yeah, I know Walmart's right across the street, but I'm always going to that lady's shop. Have I ever told you what she did for my granddaddy 14 years ago? I will always go. Now, let me tell you something. It was amazing that I get any credit at all for that because all I did was really tell these people, you are competing against people who are pushing price and product. And nobody is walking in the place and going, hey, before we start, man, I know your mom was in the hospital. What's going on with that? Nobody knows anybody's kids' names. Do you know what people will do just to have somebody shake the hand of their, their child? I mean, everybody made a big deal in our town when the principal was standing outside greeting each child, coming in every day. You know, yeah, he's greeting every child. 
And you see him, he'd be fist bumping and high-fiving. Look, no, you know, I, at some point I realized nobody's going nobody's to hire my kid when he's an adult because he can fist bump. I need my kid to learn how to shake hands like a man. But I can't be the only guy in town doing it. We have to get together as a group of people. We have to provide value for our community beyond. See, here's the thing about competing in these unbelievable results. Even in football. I mean, what I told Nick Saban that day, I said, look, I said, I don't really know anything about football, really. I'm a fan, but that's really it. I said, what I can help you do is I can help you compete in ways your competition doesn't know a game is going on. And you know what that always is? Serving. It's, it's a people thing. You know, referees are human too. Right? And everybody's competing from the snap to the whistle. But if you can figure out a way to compete from the whistle to the next snap while everybody's standing around, you'll run them off the field. What we see, there's two reasons that I have figured out that people don't serve in situations like this. One reason is they, they don't really know what to do. And they really don't, they don't know that they have any value. They don't have anything to do. And the second reason is they know everything about what to do. I mean, the, the not knowing what to do is a pretty simple one to conquer because it, it's, it's as, as easy as explaining to people that, that whether you're in the mortgage business or uh, the fast food business or, or, or whatever business you're in, your product is not French fries. Your, your product is not real estate. Your product, I, I, I don't know what you think your product is, but your product is you. It's you. People, do, do you realize You know, a few years ago, I had uh, a friend, I had spoken somewhere, a friend said, how'd it go? I said, good. He said, just good? I said, yeah, really good. And he said, did you get a standing ovation? I said, yeah. He said, oh, okay. Well, you used to tell me that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, well, you know. I got to thinking about it later, and I thought, Have I gotten so many of those things I don't really think about it? And, and then I realized how much I should appreciate that. But then here's the thought I had. How many people go through their life and never, ever get one? They never, never get a standing ovation. And then my next thought was, what would a standing ovation look like for the lady that stocks shelves at our grocery store. What would a standing ovation look like for our, our guys that pick up our garbage? What would a standing ovation look like 
for my kids' teachers? What would a standing ovation look like for the receptionist at the doctor's office? And you know, when you give people like that a part of yourselves, when you offer them a part of yourselves, and you, you talk to them about what's great about them, they're a lot more eager to listen to anything else you have to say at other times. I don't know how many of you guys remember walking into junior high school and, you know, that first time and turning around with that plate in the cafeteria and seeing that whole crowd and, like, nobody even looking and you're, you don't know where to go and and if you were fortunate enough to have somebody on the other side of the cafeteria go, hey, you remember that? Thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> there are people who go through life and they never have anybody go, hey, when they walk into a room. That is a standing ovation for people. Hey! What we can do. You see, the other thing is, is the, other, the other part of this is the people who think they know how it's done. I came home from the airport one time and I was, Austin was watering, uh, watering plants for a neighbor. Adam was like five or six and I wanted desperately to tell Polly something that had happened at the Atlanta airport. I can't even remember now what it was. But I remember, you know, we went down on the dock, and Adam was down there with us. And I started talking to Polly, and then Adam keeps interrupting. He's like, he just continues to interrupt. And, and, and finally, I, and I turned to Adam, I said, buddy, please, you got to you just let us. And, and so at one point he said, Dad, I want to fish. And I said, great, okay, go to, go to the rod room, get your rod Get your tackle box, set you up. He said, I want to catch a flounder. I said, okay. You know, um, so he comes back with his, you know, tackle box and all. And, and I know he's not going to catch a flounder because it's a Saturday afternoon in July. It's like 1.30. Jet skis are going, you know. And it, you just, you don't catch flounder then, you know. I mean, I've fished for him all my life. And. Um, and he caught a few, but they're always accident fish. And so I told him, I said, I said, now, buddy, if you're gonna, cause if you're gonna catch a flounder, you gotta really concentrate. You gotta be patient here. Now look at this tackle box. Now look here and tell me what. When you look at this, what do you think? Which one of these? If you were a flounder, because you gotta have confidence in this. Which one would you want to eat? He said, I, wanna, I would want to eat that one. And I'm looking at it as a lure like this long. I'm like, I, I wanted to say, but that's like a king mackerel lure. You don't want that. But then I'm thinking, man, you catch a flounder anyway. I don't really care. I just want him to go somewhere else. And so I said, okay, that's great. And I tied on for him. And, and I said, now look, if you're going to do this, you got to be really slow. You're going to touch it down to the sand and leave it there. And then you're going to move it like six or eight inches. And I said, just start over here, go all the way around the dock. I said, it's gonna take you a while, you really gotta concentrate. 
So he goes over here, and I say to Polly. So anyway, I'm in the I'm I'm down in uh, in between Terminal B and C. He said, "Over here, Dad." I said, "Yes, buddy. Just start right there." I said, "So I'm about to get on the tram," and I look, he said, "By the sink, Dad." Yes, Adam, by the sink. Just like right there. Just start right there. So anyway, what was I? Okay, so I'm about to get on the tram. He goes, got him. And I look over, and the, the rod's like, like this. And I tell Polly, I said, he's hung on a piling. So I go over, and I go, oh, this, this flounder rolls up the top of the water. It's like this big. Now, he's fishing in water this like this deep. And I tell Polly, I said, get the net, get the net. And she comes out with this little, like, aquarium thing. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, get the big net. <laughs> and, and so she comes, I, I dip this flounder up. I put this thing on the dock. I, I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, the, the biggest flounder I've ever seen in my life was just over five pounds. This thing weighed eight pounds. It, it was just like mess. This kid, no two front teeth. It hung from his chin and touched the dock. It was unbelievable. But see, here's the thing that I thought about much later. I would have never had a chance at that flounder. Not in a million years would I have caught that fish. Because I knew too much about flounder fishing. And I would have never been fishing for that fish in a foot and a half of water at 1.30 in the afternoon on a Saturday in July. Not in a million years. Sometimes we've got to think beyond what we know. Because everything we do matters. And everything we don't do Matters too. Every move we make, every action we take. Have you heard of the butterfly effect? The butterfly effect was a doctoral thesis written in 1963 by Edward Lorenz. It was presented to the, the uh, New York Academy of Science and laughed out of the place. And it, it stated that a butterfly could flap its wings on one side of the world and set molecules of air in motion that moved other molecules of air that then moved other molecules. That somewhere along the line would create weather patterns on the other side of the world. It was the, the butterfly effect. It, it was ridiculous, but it was interesting, and so it hung around forever. Turns out, just another one of God's laws. Just like the law of gravity, right? I mean, the law of gravity was working long before the apple ever fell on Newton's head. I mean, there are things that we don't know that then we can know. And, and so the the butterfly effect is now known in scientific circles as the law of sensitive dependence upon initial conditions. And it works every time. And not just with butterflies. It works with any form of moving matter. I'll tell you a real quick story, and then, then we're, we're through. But this, I want this, as, as I tell you this, I want this to illustrate where you can go from here. You know, my love for Michael and Terry, when I get to the bottom of the pool on it, 
is because of their love for Jesus. Yeah, I never really want I I never really wanted to go to heaven because I was scared of hell. I wanted to go to heaven because I love Jesus. And I see the love of Jesus reflected in Michael. And I see the steps he's taken, the actions he's taken, and they they so reflect God's law of sensitive dependence upon initial conditions. I was in a hotel room a few years ago, and I was ironing the left sleeve of a white shirt, and uh, ABC News was on, and they were doing that uh, person of the week thing. They do it every Friday night. They talk about somebody, how great they are, and give them the person of the week award. And so they said, they said, uh, I'm barely listening. He said, so the person of the week for, and he gave the date. So it was Norman Borlaug. And when he said Norman Borlaug, man, I put the iron down. I went and ran over in front of the television set. Norman Borlaug, I didn't know the dude was still alive. I knew who he was because I'd written some book and done some research, followed a rabbit trail. You know, I knew who he was. But he, he actually died a couple of years ago in Dallas, 96 when he died. But he's the guy who who in the 1930s hybridized corn and wheat for arid climates. And they had determined that his work throughout the decades across the world had saved the lives from famine of over 2 billion people. The guy saved 2 billion lives. And for that, he was person of the week. And I'm sitting there yelling at the TV. I'm thinking, I'm thinking, well, what about Henry Wallace? You know, because nobody said anything about him, but I knew it wasn't Norman Borla who really saved the two billion people. It was a guy named Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace was the, uh, was the vice president of the United States under Roosevelt. A lot of people think, wait, what about Truman? Well, remember, Roosevelt was elected four different times. He had three different vice presidents. The last one was Truman, but the middle one was this former Secretary of Agriculture, a guy named Henry Wallace, who, while he was Vice President of the United States, used the power of his office to create a station in Mexico whose sole purpose was to figure out how to hybridize corn and wheat for arid climates. And he hired a young man named Norman Borlaug to run it. And Norman Borlaug got the Nobel Prize, and Norman Borlaug got Person of the Week. But when you think about it, it was Henry Wallace who saved the two billion people. Unless it, unless it would have been George Washington Carver. Do you remember Carver? Remember Carver, the peanut stuff? See, one thing people don't know about Carver is when he was 19 years old and a student at Iowa State University, he had a dairy sciences professor who on Saturday and Sunday afternoon would allow his six-year-old boy to go on botanical expeditions with this brilliant student. And it was, it was George Washington Carver who took this six-year-old and pointed his life in a direction. It was, it was George Washington Carver who took this six-year-old Henry Wallace long before he ever thought of being vice president of the United States and, and, and it put a vision in his life about plants and what they could do for humanity. It's amazing when you think about it. George Washington Carver flapping his butterfly wings all those years with the peanut, 266 things that, that he developed from the peanut that we still use today. Years flapping his wings with the sweet potato, 88 things 
He developed from the sweet potato that we still use today. And while nobody was even looking, he took a a couple of weekends with a six-year-old and just happened to save two billion lives and counting. So you think, well, maybe Carver should have been first in the week. Unless maybe it was the farmer from Diamond, Missouri. A man named Moses lived in a slave state, but he didn't have, he didn't believe in slavery. So this was a real problem for this psychopath like Quantrill's raiders who would come through farms and villages burning and destroying. And one night, Quantrill's raiders came through Moses' farm and they burned the barn and they shot several people and they drug off a lady named Mary Washington who refused to let go of her infant son, George. Now Moses had a wife named Susan who was like very organized and she sent messages out and messengers here and trying desperately to create a meeting with Quantrill's Raiders. And 48 hours later, she had it set. She sent Moses several hours north to a crossroads in Kansas on a black horse where in the middle of the night, a January night, at the appointed time, he met four of Quantrill's Raiders who showed up on horseback carrying torches with flower sacks over their head, eye holes cut out. And there he traded the last horse they had left on that farm for what they threw him in a burlap sack. And as he caught it and they they thundered off, he went to the ground and unwrapped that, that burlap sack and pulled out of there this cold, naked, almost dead baby boy. And he jerked open his coat and his shirts and he put this baby in next to his skin. He covered him up and he walked that baby out. And all the way home. And the next afternoon when he stumbled into the house and he put the baby in Susan's arms, they went to the fireplace and they began to massage that baby's arms and legs, just trying to get him to cry, just get get his circulation going, just get him to do something. And they prayed over that baby then. They said, to God, they said, if you will let this baby live, we will raise this baby as our own. They promised that baby they would educate him to honor his mother, who they knew was already dead. And that was the moment they told that baby that they would give him their name. And that's how Moses and Susan Carver came to raise that little baby, George Washington. So when you think about it, maybe it was a farmer's wife from Diamond, Missouri that saved two billion people. Unless, <laughs> have a, we could do this all day, can we? I mean, how far back could we go to show whose move at what time really was the move that saved two billion people, a number that continues to increase as we sit here? How far back could we go? And how far forward could we go in the life of this church? How far forward could we go to show the difference you will make by the actions that you take, by your service, by your love, by your words, by your eye contact, by your pats on the back. How far forward? You understand, right? There's generations yet unborn whose very lives will be shifted and shaped 
by what you do this afternoon and tomorrow and the next day and the next because everything you do matters. Very proud of you guys. Very proud to be a part of this today. Thank you, Michael and Terry. Thank you.